The following podcast contains explicit language, by which we mean potty talk. It's Monday, June 13th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The testimony of Bill Barr, Bill Stepien, and a lot of people around Trump who weren't good enough not to work for the president, but were good enough not to buy into the lie about the stolen election, were there today to talk to the American people. Under oath, the U.S. House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol played clips of those fellows telling then-President Trump that the election wasn't stolen and that his claims of fraud are to quote Bill Barr again and again, bullshit. One great quote to summarize the silliness that spilled into sedition was provided by White House lawyer Eric Hirschman. You may remember Hirschman from his time defending his former boss in front of the Senate during the first Trump impeachment. Then he was an impassioned defender of the president. But that was 2020. Today, a clip was played of him presenting evidence. Here's what he told the select committee about the advisors circulating around the president who were telling him, yeah, yeah, you're right. The election, that was totally stolen. What they were proposing, I thought was nuts. And then the theory was also completely nuts, right? I mean, it was a combination of Italians, the Germans. I mean, different things have been floating around as to who was involved. I remember Hugo Chavez in the Venezuelan. She has an affidavit from somebody who says they wrote a software in and something with the Philippines and that. Just all over the radar. We heard from Barr, Stepien, Alex Cannon, Hirschman. They were dubbed Team Normal. Now, this means that there was a team not normal or a team abnormal. And that is, let's remember the context, that is within the Trump White House, they were abnormal. Against that backdrop, dwell on that. Speaking of the abnormally normal, you may remember my talking last week about the news reports that played on Monday about that past weekend's mass shootings. Another mass shooting in the United States, this time in Philadelphia, where three people are dead, at least 11 others injured. In Philadelphia and in Chattanooga incidents, three people were killed. As I noted at the time, this is absolutely the usual course of affairs in the U.S. A mass shooting with a toll of three or more, uh, meaning three dead or more, happens, well, last year is about a dozen times a week. So I wondered, are we going to report on all of these as national stories? We have the results from this weekend. Three mass shootings with three or more murdered, none made national headlines. A double murder-suicide, including a security guard trying to intervene in San Jose. Another murder-double-suicide in Georgia. In L.A., a warehouse party that featured a performance by the rapper Money Sign Suede. There were three people dead in all those incidents. A couple days earlier on Thursday, there was a workplace shooting in Maryland that killed three. None were news. I'm not really sure why one weekend everyone who makes these decisions decided to redefine the usual course of events, tragic and needless though they are, as newsworthy. I'm also not sure if it's good or bad that we got one weekend where three bodies made national news. It's a horror that it happens. I suppose it's a horror that we ignored it, but if we are not to ignore it, then we basically don't have time to pay attention to anyone else. My explanation, insofar as I even had an explanation, is that the people who put the news together are human, and this was the number one thing, gun murders was the number one thing on everyone's mind, and when they saw the three were killed in Philadelphia and in a public space, and some 
uh, almost a dozen people were injured, not necessarily by guns, by the way, just fleeing the shooting. But it reminded the people who put together the news that, yes, this is what we're all talking about. They ran with the story. You can more cynically say, well, that was a slower news weekend than this one. Everyone this weekend was talking about the United States House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. That dominated the Sunday shows, so there was not enough room for shootings on Monday. Or you could say there is but one slot for gun violence news, and that slot was taken up by news of the Senate agreeing to a framework with 10 Republicans signing on for a bill that most prominently extends red flag laws to some degree and with juveniles. I don't know. I don't know if the Senate law passes. I do know if it does pass, it's a very, very small step and probably wouldn't have stopped the Uvalde shooter. But it might stop the next potential shooter, and it instills some confidence that elected officials have a move other than the move to do nothing. That is, if the measure passes, because for many Republicans, nothing is quite the proven strategy. On the show today, it is a break in format. I conducted an interview with Dr. Jillian Peterson, who's the co-founder of The Violence Project and author of a book by the same name. She's been doing research into the psychology of and generating data on mass shooters in the U.S. So what I want to do here is play the full almost 25-minute interview. I usually will break those kind of longer interviews up into two parts. But when I started talking to her, I didn't want to stop. Uh, There was some urgency and I suspect you're going to feel that as the listener. So I'd rather not tease it out into two parts. I don't even want to say tease. I just don't want to break it up. We'll get it in one fell swoop. So this means we do sacrifice a spiel today, uh, but you'd get more depth in the interview. Tell me if occasionally you go for this format on Twitter or at MikePesca.com. Tell me what you think of the content, of the format, of anything else that's on your mind. The bill in front of the Senate, perhaps? But for now... Here's my interview about what makes a mass shooter with Dr. Jillian Peterson. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. So on this program, I've probably done more about mass shootings than any other topic. I think that uh, I have, I don't know, insights, but action items that for some reason no national politicians want to take. And much of my analysis is based on the excellent work of the Violence Project. They have the, I would say, authoritative database of mass shootings. And one of the co-founders of the Violence Project joins me now. She's Jillian Peterson, an associate professor of criminology at Hamline University. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. 
So as you know, as you probably heard from uh, that introduction and could glean, I have nothing but respect. And yet I read a read an article in Politico that says two professors found what creates a mass shooter. Will politicians pay attention? You are one of those two professors. I don't know if I'd sign on to the 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 claim in the headline that you found what creates a mass shooter. Would you? Is it that definitive that y- you crack the code? Um, I'm not sure we exactly cracked the code. I didn't write the headline, but we have certain, <laughs> certainly found kind of the common pathway and the common throughway that you see in a lot of these perpetrators' lives. But of course, for every person who becomes a mass shooter that has a life like this, there's millions of people who also have similar experiences who do not become mass shooters. So it's not quite that crystal clear. Right. It, just like so many uh, people in our society who are hurt and have been hurt, they lash out, but then many more of them don't. The same is true of serial killers. The same is true of victims of abuse. But what did you find? What are the common elements and what can we do about it? Yeah, so we built this database of 180 perpetrators coded on 200 pieces of life history information. And then we also conducted about 50 interviews with perpetrators themselves, with people who knew perpetrators and victims. And what we find is the early lives of perpetrators often involve a lot of violence, neglect, sometimes sexual abuse, parental suicide, that kind of early childhood trauma that lays the foundation. Then you see this build over time towards kind of isolation, depression, hopelessness, their lives aren't what they expected to be. Um, A lot of self-hate, oftentimes their suicide attempts. And then that kind of flips and turns outward. So it becomes less of what's wrong with me and it becomes what's wrong with them and whose fault is this? And Mm -hmm. so they study other perpetrators. They see themselves in other mass shooters. They spend time getting radicalized online and they pick kind of who they blame. So school shooters blame their school. Workplace shooters blame their workplace. Other people blame racial groups or women or religious groups. And these mass shootings, they're designed to be a final act. So nobody plans for what happens afterwards. They're designed to either be killed or be arrested and spend the rest of their life in prison. It's kind of this way to get their grievance and anger out to the world that forces us all to watch. And then, of course, they have access to the weapons that they need to do it. So final act, the shooters, the shooter in Buffalo, the shooter in uh, Colorado, they were arrested and it seemed like, well, they certainly could have committed suicide, but it seemed like they wanted to be arrested. You're saying arrested by the police and taken to jail is is the same. uh, We should consider that in the same bucket as suicide for understanding these shooters. Final act. Yeah, I think final act in the sense that there's no plan for what comes after. They plan in order to get their message to the world. You have to be known as the person who did this in order to get your name in the history books and to get that notoriety. So some perpetrators actually do want to see the world respond to it. So they want to spend the rest of their lives in prison. Many of them do plan to kill themselves during the act. The ones who don't plan to kill themselves, are they more, let's say, ideologically motivated, uh, more likely to, you know, post tracts that justify their uh, their killings, previously existing tracts, be it, you know, something from hate groups. Uh, recently, the Buffalo shooter was the mass replacement theory. Is that a through line of the ones who don't commit suicide? You know, we don't see that consistent of patterns. Sometimes it comes down to kind of the end becomes very chaotic. It sounded like that Buffalo shooter actually was going to commit suicide and then he was deescalated and talked down. So it kind of comes down to what happens at the very end. We have seen these increases in fame-seeking mass 
mass shooting. So people leaving behind manifestos or videos or things that they want the world to read after their act. You interviewed, what, eight of the mass shooters in your database? Mm-hmm. Yes. Could you say which ones? I can't. Okay, no problem. Um, would it be uh, useful in our efforts to quell mass shootings to, to publicize the miserable experiences of the mass shooters who lived? Maybe some of them even express remorse. Might that be something that would give pause to the next mass shooter? I do think that there's this kind of mythology around these mass shooters that they become even these kind of deity-like figures in these dark corners of the internet, that if we did sort of publicize how miserable their lives are, it might make a difference. But more importantly, I think it's really about understanding what that pathway to violence looks like so we can yes. actually start preventing and intervening earlier. Of the eight you talked to, did you hear regret uh, regret maybe that you thought was sincere from any of them? I did. And of course, the ones that chose to talk to me are not necessarily representative of all mass shooters. Most of For them- For one thing, they lived, you know, exactly. they're not suicidal. Yeah, exactly. Most of them die in the act. So these were ones that lived and then were willing to tell their stories. And it was clear they weren't going to get paid. We weren't going to use their names. They weren't going to get any notoriety. We just wanted to figure out what got them to that place. Um, and many of them, you know, it had been years since the shooting and they felt kind of disconnected from the person who they were when they did it. Um, right. And so they were able to talk about it in a different kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I would guess that of the eight, as is so often with mass shooters, they were young, very young. Their, for instance, prefrontal cortexes, cortices hadn't formed correctly. They in some ways probably are different people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Most, you know, a lot of the perpetrators that we've studied are 15, 16, 18, 20, which is what we've seen. These 18-year-olds, you know, when you're 40 giving an interview about when you were 18, it's it's very different. Yeah. So, so far in our conversation, we've been saying the shooter, the Buffalo shooter, and I'm doing that, I assume, for the same reason you're doing that, which you spoke about, which is not to create more attention and deification of them. This happened, I, you know, I took that tack as a journalist after the Columbine shooting when those two shooters, and at this point I could probably say their names, they're so widely known, but they really did become formative for future shooters. But as I look at the spate of recent shootings, uh, I do see that the media really stay away from stay, saying the shooters' names, and yet we see so many more mass shootings. Has that tactic worked? Yeah, I think we still don't know. And I would agree. I've talked to a lot of media the past few weeks, and there's been a market shift where media are not using the name, they're not posting the picture. I think that's really caught on. Now, what we don't know is whether that's going to make any difference. And I think right. there's the piece of it where they are, you know, they get all this fame and notoriety in the news, but then there's also just like the social media spread and the things that it's harder to control and the chat rooms and that it's, it's hard to know if this is going to make a difference. I don't think we've seen it really play out yet. You're right. They're definitely there in the chat rooms. But I have to say, I listen to a lot of conservative media, too. And they, the biggest conservative podcasts, don't even say, or radio shows, don't even say the name either. It's one of the few things we can all agree on. And it strikes me that it's a little like, oh, a, a prayer or some bit of 
um, luck, good luck, a talisman, where maybe by not saying the names, in fact, it probably goes back to something primordial, by not saying the name of evil, that evil won't happen. Then again, I ask myself, well, what's the downside? I, like I told you, I participate in this prayer. Uh, what's the downside of just not saying the names? And I wonder what you're mostly focused on is thinking about the shooters before they're shooters, the, what makes them shooters. And if we don't tell their stories, I'm not even saying with sympathy. I'm just saying with accuracy. If we don't tell their stories, we think about that less. And just the very fact that you're not going to name the shooters really precludes you from telling the stories fully. So have you considered the downside of not saying their names? Yeah, we have. I think we come at this, this is not about any one story, right? This is about the collective story and the patterns that you see in their lives. So kind of the individual stories are less important than the overall patterns. And what, you know, some perpetrators will say, I I didn't want to just kill myself because then nobody would know who I was, right? I needed to do this mass shooting and it's a it's a performance. It's it's a performance that we watch. We're the audience. We are active participants in this, right? We spread the message. We witness the horror. It's a terrorist act for us. And so by taking them off the stage, I think that's a little bit of the the movement in terms of not using their names. It's taking their platform away and saying you you don't get to be the star of this show and we're not going to watch. Right. So the database which is up to how many now? It's 180 at this point. Yeah, 180. And it's based on the threshold of four people killed, uh, not including the shooter. And that, am I right, that is also the FBI's definition of mass shooting? Yeah, it's a really conservative definition compared to other counts. And we did that really purposefully because we were trying to really study this very specific phenomenon that we had seen an increase in, which is people coming into public spaces and killing four or more people. There's certainly cases where three people died and 25 people were shot that probably should be in there. It's just at some point you have to sort of pick a definition. And when four or more people die, that's when you start seeing the level of media coverage and investigation that we kind of need to do the deep dive into the life histories. So there are other databases. One keeps track of school shootings and one keeps track of all mass shootings just described by plain definition, more than two people shot. I think that's the Gun Violence Archive does that. And I wonder, I mean, I'm all in favor of all sorts of information. But for instance, the school shooting tracker, just any time a a gun was shot in a school, which can be, you know, in in a parking lot with having nothing to do with the school. And the other one, which is just anytime more than one person was shot. Sometimes it gets reported in a statistic like there have been more than 200 mass shootings this year, but not the mass shootings that you're tracking, not the mass shootings that really get media attention and concentrate the imagination and in fact um, are the source of our national horror. Do you think that there is any, I don't know, beyond just being protective of your own database, do you think there's any downside of having such a capacious definition of mass shooting? No, I think it's actually a really good thing. I think all of the definitions are correct and all of the databases are right. It really depends on 
what, you know, what you're looking at. I think where we have gotten confused is we're not being clear about what definition we're using and why we're using that definition. Because if you're talking about the number of kids impacted by a gun going off in their school, or if you're talking about victims or communities impacted by gun violence, a much broader definition is better, right? If you're talking about- yeah. And the Washington Post, by the way, has a very good database on children affected by a school yeah. shooting, which is to say they just count the number of kids in a school when it went on lockdown because of a shooting. But right, exactly. But if you're trying to really understand who are these people committing this kind of new type of crime that we don't understand, where you are walking into a public space and just shooting randomly at strangers, that's something that we hadn't really figured out where it was coming from and who these people are. So that's that's sort of our perspective, really that kind of psychosocial life histories of perpetrators. It's a, it's a different project. And so I think it really just matters that you're clear why you're using the definition you're using. And in a moment, we'll hear more from Dr. Peterson on her methods and the similarity that mass shooters have to assassins and serial killers. In terms of getting the best data and research, as you mentioned, there are times where three people died and, you know, a score were injured. And so we could say, but for luck, but for intervention of uh, a, a great doctor, but for any sort of factors, these people would be in the database. Have you looked at the close, or have you at least thought about looking at the close cases and seeing if it changes the overall direction of your data? Because there's, like I, like, I think we're both acknowledging there's no real reason why some people that aren't in the database um, sh- shouldn't be, except for you have to have a threshold and a cutoff somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have looked at that. We've considered going down to three or more, and really it's just a mat, it doubles the size of the database. So it's just a, we would need another round of funding, right? Like how we would totally do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And another uh, two of you guys. <laughs> yes, exactly. We would need a whole another army of research assistants in five years of time, but we would do it. But I think what is interesting is if you look at kind of different databases, the U.S. Secret Service, Mother Jones, you actually see pretty similar patterns emerge. So it kind of, we could make the database bigger or smaller, and I think we would still see the same trends if we're focused on kind of this narrow type of definition that we're talking about. So... There have been these kind of studies on serial killers and assassins. What do you find? I'm sure you've read the literature on that. How are mass shooters different from those two other categories? Yeah, I think the fact that these are designed to be final acts, the fact that these perpetrators are pretty hopeless. There's something about serial killing where you're doing it over and over again. There's often this kind of toying with authority and um, you want to sort of keep going as long as possible. There does seem to be this similar kind of quest for notoriety and fame, but I think the fact that mass shootings are suicides makes them different Um, and that you see that kind of in the lives leading up to the shooting. Mm-hmm. But in terms of if I gave you, you know, six data points about the life of someone who would either become an assassin, a serial killer or a mass shooter, would you as an expert be able to, do you think, pick with pretty good uh, accuracy who would become the mass shooters and who would become the serial killers? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, that's yeah. a good question. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, there's perpetrators we've studied who's, who were trying to decide between whether they wanted to be a serial killer or a mass shooter. 
So um, this gets me to a theory that's, I don't even know how to test it, but I wonder, I wonder how, if, if it could be the case that there are certain amounts of people in our um, gun flooded society who are going to, uh, who are going to enact violence on others. And over the years, we've gotten pretty good at, say, protecting our public officials and hardening those targets. And so assassinations have gone down. And serial killing, as you know, I'm sure, has has gone down a lot. And police methods have a lot to do with that. So I'm kind of wondering if we're just kind of, you know, squeezing the sandbag on one side and the sand just shows up on another side. That the reason we're seeing these mass shootings is that these other prominent public forms of killing have been guarded against. Yeah, that's actually, we write about that in our book. We discuss sort of as the serial killers have kind of disappeared in a way. And part of that, as you said, is a lot about police method. A lot of that also, there's this element of societal fascination that faded along with it. And so there are still serial killers. We just don't care, right? It doesn't make the headlines. We watch, you know, we watch Dexter, but it's really not the same. Whereas now this new form of public mass killing really has captured us and it's terrified us. So in a young 18-year-old trying to, you know, make the history books, they have a playbook for how you do that, right? They they watch, they study others, and this is how you do it. And so they copy. And there's that social contagion aspect of mass shootings that I think is really important. Yeah. Um, how important is it to really examine the inspiration, the stated inspiration for the mass killings? So some do it because they're quote unquote incels and they get that information online. Some do it because they're racists and they get that information online. Some are inflamed by politics and some have kind of, some are workplace and or have incoherent theories. How much, how worth it is it to try to examine, delve into, uh, eliminate or counter the sources of inspiration? Yeah, this is something that we talk quite a bit about. And it, I think Sometimes we look for that to feel like we've explained the problem, right? Oh, he's a white supremacist or he's a domestic terrorist or, you know, he was an incel or he was experiencing psychosis and then we've solved it, right? We get it. It makes sense. We can put that person in a box. But the reality is that doesn't explain it, right? It's like, where does that come from? And what we actually find is that that hatred of whoever they blame for their place in the world, that grievance actually comes fairly late. It's not like these perpetrators are being raised in households full of, you know, racist ideology. They find it in later on in life when they're already miserable and looking for who to blame. Now, I do think that process of where they're finding it and holding social media companies accountable for hateful rhetoric on their platforms, I think we're starting to have those conversations, how easy it is to find that sort of hateful rhetoric now is a problem and is something we need to address, how easily young people can be radicalized. But it's not kind of the root. And I think when we stop there, we don't get sort of the deeper story that we need for prevention. Well, I question even the word radicalized because it seems like you're saying they're radicalized already, right? They're radically different from the norms of society in that they want to kill people. And then that feeling just attaches itself to an ideology. The ideology didn't make them want to kill. 
Right. Yes. They found the ideology, but there is this element of, we call it social proof in the book where other people are saying, right? Like, yes, this is right. This is correct. Other people feel like you, you're not alone in this. You're a part of this bigger thing. You have this sort of community of other people who feel the same way you do. Mm. Okay. I want to talk in our final minutes about the material involved. First of all, the guns themselves, as the database makes abundantly clear the vast majority of the worst mass killings in the last 30 years have been done by AR-15 or AR-15 type weapons. You know, the Bushmaster and Sandy Hook and all the variety of weapons in Las Vegas. Were that weapon, that type of weapon to be eliminated, um, do you think mass killings would be quelled at all? Um, it's that's a good question. I do think that weapon is a is symbolic in these mass killings. So they choose it a because you can kill a lot of people very quickly, and b because they're copying other perpetrators. There's sort of this performance of what a mass shooting is, and that's the prop that is involved. And so they do go out seeking that specific AR-15. Now. Often people still use handguns, right? Like people still use rifles. People still use different types of guns. But specifically that weapon, I think, especially when you're appealing to these 18, 19-year-old kids, I do think at least raising the age to 21, if not banning it altogether, would be helpful. But look at the database, as you do every day. If the AR-15 is taken out and replaced with a handgun, you can never say for sure what would happen, but the data seems to indicate that fewer people would be dead. There have been mass killings with handguns, but there are also mass incidents where a handgun wounds many people but doesn't kill, and that usually doesn't happen with an AR-15. Absolutely. Yes, that discussion is really critical at the policy level right now. I want to take a slight detour. I've always wondered this. Why was the Virginia Tech shooter, which is one of the five worst mass killings and the one in the last uh, 15 years without an AR-15, why was he able to kill so many people with a handgun? Was there something specific about that? You know, I don't actually know the details of, I try to stay away from the actual shooting itself and kind of the police response. And I feel like there's other people that are much better at that piece. As a psychologist, I try to really focus on that lead up. But I think... Sometimes when it's kind of the first mass shooting of its kind and people aren't prepared and don't know how to respond, I think that's one of the things we saw playing out in Virginia Tech. Yeah, I do too. That it was so unusual, though it did happen after Columbine, but no one really had, no one said we're involved in a mass shooting and people didn't even run away, for instance. Now people run away even when there's a rumor of a mass shooting. Right. So here's my last thing, and this is something I've picked up in the database. The preponderance of gear and body armor in the last, I don't know, 10 years when uh, I'll say Charles Whitman went to the tower in Texas. You know, he was not geared up. And this wasn't the case for decades and decades, even though we had mass shootings. But now I'm seeing a lot more body armor. Are you seeing that? And is there maybe some of the mass killers you talk you talk to mention that? What can you tell me about body armor and, you know, all this extra gear being associated with these acts of violence? Yeah, we are seeing that. It's not in the majority of cases, but of course, in the the last few, it's certainly been something that we're having a bigger conversation about. I think part of that is the performance aspect of it. Another part of that is they're trying, this is so awful, but they're trying to get the highest body counts, right? They, 
they try to beat each other. They try to, I mean, there's awful places on the internet where there's sort of tallies that people try to get the highest body counts. And so if you come in wearing body armor, it takes longer to be killed or to kill yourself. You have more time, right? And so I think that's one piece of this is the push for to be the newest name, the biggest headline. The Violence Project is co-founded by Dr. Jillian Peterson and Dr. James Densley. They also have a book out, The Violence Project, How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic. Dr. Peterson, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the CFO, COO, and chief human resource officer of Peachfish Production. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.